to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today we're going to talk about metagenomics and a particular metagenomic tool called Kraken. But first of all, let's figure out what metagenomics even is. So imagine you wake up with a sore throat and you go to a doctor and your doctor takes a swab from your throat. What happens next? So they try to culture the microorganisms that they took from your throat. They try to make them grow in a petri dish or something. And uh, if it grows, then they know there is something there and they try to figure out uh, what kind of um, bacteria are there or what kind of antimicrobials these bacteria react to. But this culturing approach is somewhat limiting. And the reason is that not all microorganisms live outside of their normal environment. So they may be happy to live in your throat, but when you try to make them live in a petri dish, they, they will refuse because that environment is different. And uh, there may be some particular properties of your throat that these microorganisms particularly enjoy. So an alternative to culturing is using DNA sequencing to find out directly what the composition of your throat microbiome is. And there are two main approaches, two main ways to apply DNA sequencing to understanding microbial composition. They're called phylotyping and metagenomics. The difference is that in phylotyping, you try to sequence just some particular genes, some marker genes. And in metagenomics, you sequence all the DNA. And by the way, uh, phylotyping is often called metagenomics. So people would sequence one particular marker gene, and then they will call their study a metagenomic study. But uh, there is a fair amount of uh, criticism of doing this. So the proper terms, as far as I know, is phylotyping and metagenomics for those two respective approaches. For phylotyping, uh, the marker gene that is most commonly used is the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. This gene just happens to have a lot of mutations across the species, but very few mutations inside the species. And so the way you typically do this is you take the uh, particular primers for PCR that will amplify this particular gene, and then you have um, many alternative sequences of this gene. You cluster them with a certain sensitivity. So you say, like, one way to cluster them would be to cluster the exact same sequence. And then you have a very rigid definition of uh, species. Well, they usually don't call them species. They call them OTUs, Operational Taxonomic Units. And uh, OTUs, depending on what threshold you choose for clustering, OTUs may uh, be uh, species or genera or something else. Um, usually they don't correspond to 
exactly to any of the classic taxonomic units. That's why they, they're called OTUs. Anyway, so the disadvantage of just phylotyping is that the organisms in the same, uh, so to say, species or organisms with the same uh, 16S rRNA gene may actually have um, quite different genomes. They, ha- they may have different gene composition inside their genomes. And this is because the bacterial genomes are very fluid. The horizontal uh, gene transfer is very widespread among bacteria. On the other hand, the metagenomics approach is you basically sequence everything you can find and then try to figure out where uh, these sequences, where these reads come from. And that last part is, of course, uh, one of the trickiest. What do you do with these sequences? How do you figure out uh, which species or which genes they belong to? Well, I suppose if you are only interested in the gene composition, this is somewhat easier. Like if you don't care which bacteria this gene came from, you only care that this is a uh, gene that is homologous in many, many species of bacteria and produces a certain protein, then it becomes easier. But if you also want to try to classify these uh, sequences among the bacteria, uh, then it's tricky. So an obvious approach is to use BLAST. This is the go-to method for many biologists when they deal with uh, some unknown sequences from unknown organisms, just BLAST it. And this is not such a bad approach, and it's used widely. Now, if you're not familiar with BLAST, it is a local alignment tool. Basically, you give it first a set of um, reference sequences, and it builds a database out of them. And then you can search this database. You give it a um, query sequence, for example, a read from your metagenomics study, and you ask where could it come from. And it tries to align this search sequence, this query sequence, to all of the reference sequences, and it finds all the places where it matches with uh, some precision. Now, in metagenomics, it is almost inevitable that uh, many of your sequences will map to multiple species because these species share a lot of genes. What you could do in that case is, for example, to take the lowest common ancestor of those species. Of course, you can build more sophisticated statistical models, either based on the BLAST results or based on uh, some other alignment procedure. And people have applied, for example, Markov models to this. But the problem is they are going to be slower than just pure BLAST. And BLAST is generally considered quite fast. That's uh, part of the rationale for its name, but even BLAST may be just too slow for metagenomics, because remember, you have to BLAST align all the uh, millions of reads that you have sequenced, and even though BLAST is fast, when multiplied by a million, it's no longer that fast. 
what Kraken sets up to do is to be faster than even Blast. And how does it do it? It does it through not aligning the sequences. And this is a trend that has been around for a few years now, that instead of aligning the sequences, you split the sequences into K-mers, and a K-mer is just K nucleotides in a row. And so you split a sequence into these um, short substrings, and you map these short substrings instead. And uh, for short substrings, you can just build a database. And this is how it can be faster than BLAST, because you don't do any actual alignment. Another example of this idea is the um, pseudo-alignment RNA-seq quantification algorithms, uh, like Callista or Sailfish or Salmon. And we will be discussing some of those in uh, the future podcasts, I'm sure. But today, let's talk about how Kraken uses KMERS to analyze metagenomics data very fast. First, Kraken needs to build a database for the reference sequences. So you supply Kraken the reference sequences that you know, and um, Kraken splits these sequences into KMERS, into these uh, substrings of uh, fixed length, and uh, indexes them. And by the way, when I say split, it's not exactly split, right? So for example, if you have a string of length 10 and you want to extract all five mers from a string of length 10, uh, this doesn't just mean uh, 2k mers. So you could imagine like the first half is the first k mer and the second half is the second k mer. No, that's not the case. Instead, what you have is six k-mers, the first one from one to five, the second one from two to six, and so on, and the last one from uh, six to ten. So Kraken takes all the reference sequences and extracts all the k-mers and uh, puts them into a sort of database, which is necessary so that you can quickly look up a given k-mer. Now, you can think about this as a book index. So it may take you a very long time to find a particular word in the book. But if uh, the word is present in the index at the end of the book, you can find it rather quickly. And the key is that the words in the index themselves are sorted alphabetically. So you can locate the word quickly in the index itself. And this is similar to how these databases work. We will discuss the um, finer points of Kraken database format in a bit. So assembling this database can take quite a bit of time, of course, especially if you have a large number of reference sequences and these sequences are themselves rather long. But the good news is that you have to do this just once. And then you can reuse the same database for many, many metagenomics experiments. You can even share this this database among your colleagues or even online. And I think Kraken itself comes with a pre-assembled database that you may use. Now, this database would naturally map a k 
to a species in which this chamer occurs. But of course, we should expect that the same chamer will appear in many species. So what should it map to? Well, one way is just to record all the species in which this chamer occurs. But Kraken actually does something uh, a bit more clever. It records a um, lowest common ancestor of all the species in which this chamer occurs. And so correspondingly, when you're building the database, you should supply some kind of phylogenetic information to Kraken. So if um, this particular chamer occurs in species A and in species B, it can look up that the lowest common ancestor of A and B is some C. And so it will map the chamer to C. Now, the thing about common ancestors is they they are usually not like real existing species, but a species that is hypothesized to have existed some time ago from which these two species have descended. So what good does it do you to know that this chamber maps to uh, the ancestor C where you're interested in the actual existing species? And the answer is that you later combine multiple chamers from your read. So you have, let's say, a uh, 200 base read, and you produce 31 MERS, the substrings of 31 nucleotides, from it. Some of these chamers will map to a particular existing species in your database, and some of them will be mapped to their ancestors. But you don't need to classify every chamer exactly. Remember that your original goal is to classify the whole sequence. And so then you combine these chamers and their classifications, and you see that if most of chamer map to species A, but some of the chamers map to species C, it's not a contradiction because what maps to C is by definition mapped to A as well. And so your conclusion is that this sequence most probably comes from species A. And the way they formalize this is they assign each species a score. When mapping a read, they count how many chamers from the read mapped to species A or one of its ancestors, how many chamers mapped to species B or one of its ancestors, and so on. And this allows you to compute this kind of score for every species, and then you just pick the species with the highest score. Now, you can think about this as a some kind of phylogeny-inspired algorithm. But in fact, a very similar algorithm could be derived from the pure computer science. So think about this. If your goal is to find the species with the highest score regarding a particular uh, DNA read, then what you could do is just count how many times each chamer from a read maps to every species. But then your database would need to hold for every chamer, instead of just one species, it would need to contain a list of many species where this this chamer occurs. And a lot of chamer would presumably occur in very many species. 
So this could be thought as just an optimization. When we cluster these lists, we sort of collapse them into their common ancestors. But it's not strictly necessary that these uh, collapsed nodes would be common ancestors. We could just uh, make up uh, some kind of uh, pointers for these clusters of species. For example, if a particular chamber occurs in species A, B, and C, we could say, okay, I'll just call this combination of A, B, and C as uh, X. And like every time I encounter A, B, and C, I would just put X instead to, to save space. And only once in, in this database, I will clarify that X actually means A, B, and C. Now, X is not necessarily a uh, lowest common ancestor of A, B, and C. It's not even an ancestor. It's just a math abstraction. But this would result in a very uh, similar algorithm, one that wouldn't use the phylogenetic information, but that would perform uh, very similarly. And so these are two ways to view this algorithm. One is inspired by phylogeny and requiring the phylogenetic tree in order to map k-mers into lowest common ancestors. And the other is just a uh, computing optimization, which sort of clusters the uh, species together based on their common k-mers. And uh, instead of duplicating this information, instead of putting the whole lists in the database, it would put just these pointers. The distinctive feature of Kraken is the way it organizes its own database. So in computer science, there are two principal ways to organize these uh, lookup tables or databases. One is based on the ordering. This is how the words are arranged in a dictionary. They are arranged in their alphabetical order and you know the order of the words. So you can open the dictionary somewhere in the middle and see what's the first letter of the word there. And uh, if your word that you're trying to look up, like let's say you're trying to look up the word phylogeny, in the dictionary and you open the dictionary in the middle and it's at the letter K and you think, okay, P comes after K. So you open it maybe at three quarters and it's letter S and you say P Q R S. So P is before S. So you go a few pages earlier in order to find the letter P and so on. This is called search trees. And the other way to organize lookup tables is through hashing functions. So a hashing function is a mathematical function that maps, for example, your word or your kmer into some number. It's uh, sort of like a zip code. So the mapping from your um, street name and an address to a zip code is not something that you can uh, easily visualize. It's just a mapping from an address to a zip code. But then once you know a zip code, you can look into your table by that zip code. And this approach is called hash tables. Now, hash tables are usually somewhat faster than lookup trees. But in this paper, they don't use hash tables. They 
use something more like lookup trees, but more clever. Their car observation is this. So you have a read and you're trying to look up the consecutive k-mers from that read. So first k-mer would be, for example, from 1 to 10, the second one from 2 to 11, the third one from 3 to 12, and so on. And these k-mers are very similar, right? They share, so for example, the k-mer from 1 to 10 and the k-mer from 2 to 11, they share nine common nucleotides from 2 to 10. And so you would think that uh, this shared content would allow you to share some of the work while looking them up. Now, with a hash table, the hashes of these two k-mers from 1 to 10 and from 2 to 11, the hashes will be completely different. That's the core feature of a hashing function, that it scrambles the contents uh, of, of its argument and so the tiniest change in the argument leads to an enormous change in the hashed value. So if they used a hash table, they wouldn't be able to reuse any of the searching work. They wouldn't be able to share the search work among the neighboring k-mers. And by, by the way, if they used a naive lookup table, the problem would be the same, right? Because uh, take the word phylogeny. Uh, its first letter is P and its second letter is H. So if you look at the first three mers of the word phylogeny, it's PHY and IHYL, right? So these two three mers, they don't have anything in common. And in the dictionary, they are in very different locations. So neither naive hash table nor a naive lookup tree bring any sort of uh, speed benefits here. Here's what they do instead. They partition, again, not strictly partition, but they generate mmers, right? So kmers, but with a lower, lower length. They denote this length as m. So they take their kmers and they generate the smaller mers, the mmers, from the kmers. So for example, if the original k equals 10, then uh, you have 10 mers, and this is what you want to look up in the database. But then you pick, for example, um, three mers from this 10 mers, and uh, you order them lexicographically in an alphabetical order. And you pick the uh, smallest mmer inside each kmer, and then you have a two-stage lookup tree. So at the first stage, you find the entry corresponding to your mmer, for example, to your 3mer in the dictionary. And that entry leads you to a subtable or sublookup tree in which you look up the full kmer. Now, there are two advantages to this scheme. And these advantages come from the fact that two neighboring kmers most likely have the shared mmer. And here's why. So consider two neighboring 10mers from 1 to 10 and from 2 to 11. As I said, they have nine nucleotides in common. So when would they not have the same minimal mmer inside them, right? Why would this happen? So one option is that this, uh, the minimal mmer in the first 10mer would be at the very beginning. 
So if m equals 3, this is a 3-mer, so it will be from 1 to 3. Uh, in this case, this m-mer, this 3-mer, would not belong to the, se to the second 10-mer. And therefore, the uh, second 10-mer would presumably have a different minimal m-mer. The second option is if the second 10-mer, there the minimal m-mer is the very last one, from uh, 9 to 11. Now, in this case, this emmer would not belong to the first 10 mer, which only spans until 10. And so the first 10 mer would have another minimal 3 mer. But these are two like very specific cases. In the majority of cases, these two 10 mers share most of their content. And so the minimal MR will occur somewhere in between and will be shared by the two 10 mers. And this is what the authors exploit in this case. They exploit that the two overlapping strings will most of the time have a shared minimal uh, MR inside them. And this means that once you looked up the first 10 mer in the database and you moved to the second 10 mer, which is like just one nucleotide to the right, if you confirm that it has the same minimal 3-mer as the first 10-mer, you don't need to look up from the root of the search tree, but you actually continue from the same intermediate node, which correspond to that 3-mer, um, to that minimal 3-mer. There are two advantages of this sharing of work. The first advantage is quite obvious, right? You actually share the work of looking up the MR itself. So you share the part of the walk through the tree. But this is not actually the main advantage of this two-layered scheme. The main advantage comes from the fact that usually accessing a more local information is cheaper in computers. So imagine that you're reading this database from the disk. When looking up the first 10 mer, you found the location on your hard disk where the subtree for the 3 mer is stored. And so that part of the disk, first, you know where it is, and operating system knows where it is. And second, there is a good chance that it is now loaded into the RAM cache. So it is now in the RAM memory, which is much faster than your disk. And so if your second lookup is in the same area, and there's a good chance it will be in RAM, so it will be much faster. Now, when your whole database is in RAM, the same applies, only now the parts of your in-RAM database are actually in the CPU cache. And so again, the same applies. If you look up repeatedly in the same small region, it is much faster because it will be retained in the CPU cache. So this clever trick allows Kraken to use this good sort of uh, access pattern, good data access pattern, which looks up uh, KMERS in the same region most of the time, right? Occasionally, you'll switch to a different minimal MR, right? It, it will inevitably happen, maybe when you come to the end of the first KMER. But nevertheless, a lot of consecutive KMERS will reside in the same subtable, which is smaller than the whole table, and so the access to the smaller table will be more efficient.